You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers, Assistant Multimedia Producer for the BMJ. This week is all about women's health and the menopause. Later, Mabel Chu gets some practical advice on prescribing HRT. I think women who are considering HRT need to be aware that certainly there is an increased risk the menopause density can be increased and there may be this small increase of breast cancer that seems to go, get larger with uh, long-term use. But before that, our multimedia editor Duncan Jarvis speaks to the author of a BMJ research paper looking at trends in menopausal symptoms. I'm joined on the line by Geeta Mishra, who's professor at the School of Population Health, University of Queensland. Now, she and her colleagues have got an article online on bmj.com, which sets out to see how symptoms in perimenopause set the trajectory for later symptoms in women. You use 20 common health symptoms um, as the sort of basis of this study, as the measure. So where did you get those from? Are those uh, standards? These are standard symptoms uh, that are usually asked of women during midlife, and it range from, you know, their headaches, how bothersome they found it, right to vasomotor symptoms such as hot flushes, night sweats. And it talks about the severity of the symptoms in terms of its frequency and duration. So they're well characterised? They're well characterised, and just about all studies of menopause includes this symptoms checklist. Now, you based this study on a population in the UK. So uh, who are these women and where did you get your data from? This study uses uh, data from women cohort members of one of the longest-running British birth uh, cohort studies. Women participants of the MRC National Survey of Health and Development. It is also known as the 1946 British Birth Cohort, where we have annual surveys of on the experience of symptoms from ages 47 to 54 years from more than 600 women who went through natural menopause. And I must stress that the results are only on women with natural menopause. For instance, it does not include women on um, hormone therapy or on or those who have had hysterectomy. Okay, well, we can come back to that in a little bit. But when you did this, you took the results of these surveys and you created four classes, psychological, somatic, vasomotor and sexual discomfort. So how did the trajectories of those play out and and was there interaction between them? What we found um, is that the symptoms uh, for psychological, such as trouble sleeping and anxiety and tearfulness and so on, uh, tended to group together. So from year to year, you had same clusters of symptoms appearing over time. Uh, what we wanted to do was to look and see how these symptoms vary for particular women. So what we did was, um, for each symptoms group, we found that women clustered to form distinct profiles that characterize the severity of symptoms through midlife. And for some of these groups, uh, they're best understood in terms of their timing relative to menopause. Take, for example, vasomotor symptoms. Clearly, there are uh, different profiles based on severity of the symptoms. So we found that about half of the women only had mild symptoms or vasomotor symptoms through midlife. 14% had an early peak around the 
time of the menopause and then it declined in early post-menopause. And we described this as early severe profile. And in about one in 10 women had a late severe profile. In other words, the severity of symptoms increased before menopause and continued to increase in early post-menopause and then remained severe for four years or more into post-menopause. So we found that there's about four different um, profiles to describe the experience of vasomotor symptoms in that seven years. Okay, and obviously people can read in your paper the rest of those trajectories which are all set out there. How did these relate to previous literature? I mean, is, are you confirming something or are these new findings? Well, these are uh, new findings because currently uh, only a few symptoms have a well-established association with menopausal transition, such as the vasomotor symptoms. Um, but for many of the other symptoms, we find the findings have been mixed. Uh, but more importantly, the statistics available on the prevalence of symptoms have also been fairly basic. So, for instance, uh, while the precise figure varies, we know that 50% of women report vasomotor symptoms through uh, menopausal transition. Doing this work, looking at profiles, we find that you know, out of the 50%, women have different experiences of severity of symptoms. Half of them had mild symptoms, and then, you know, another 10% had very severe symptoms. So basically, this method really aims at characterizing each individual woman and the experience of vasomotor symptoms through the menopause. It's interesting to see that severe vasomotor symptoms were associated with sort of lower socioeconomic groups or more severe symptoms. Is there a sort of putative explanation for that? I think there could be a range of factors, and it's something that we will uh, want to study more in detail. But I was thinking uh, in terms of the body mass index, lifestyle factors could be one thing that how socioeconomic position might affect uh, the severity of symptoms. But I do think that there is an area that we do really need to understand what predicts these different trajectories and then also to look at how these different trajectories predict future health outcomes, I think, and that's something that we will be planning to do. Now, you also excluded from this women, as you said at the beginning, who hadn't gone through natural menopause, so people on women on HRT or who'd had a hysterectomy. Now, women who on HRT might be some of those who experience more extreme symptoms, and that's the treatment for it. So do you think that will have skewed your results at all? We just wanted to see how women who haven't taken any intervention, how they experience menopausal symptoms. We felt that if we started uh, including women with HRT, the analysis gets a lot more complicated in terms of, you know, what do we do in, uh, for women who start, start, stop uh, HRT um, and all that stuff. Uh, and from this result, we find that, you know, 10% of them have severe symptoms. So we could be under-reporting the severe symptoms. Okay. Now, sort of as a bottom line, if you're a GP who's talking to a woman who is starting menopause, how should you take this research into account? Well, the first point is that these symptoms profile need to be confirmed in other studies, uh, and even then they're intended 
uh, just as a potential guide. We feel that the use of symptoms profile can provide a more more information than current statistics for women seeking treatment for symptoms. Having some sense of the likely severity and duration of symptoms means that women and their doctors can make a more informed choice about treatment and management aspects. Absolutely. And um, how about for women? What's the take-home message for them? Well, I think more generally it may be worthwhile for women, you know, as they feel they're approaching menopause, for instance, you know, with the sign of irregular periods and all that, to talk to their health professionals about what to expect and perhaps note down their bothersome symptoms and when these begin. Uh, Again, this profile can be a part of a shift in approach to menopause, more towards preparing for what is a natural stage in a woman's life. Great. Well, uh, Gita, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Pleasure. And that paper is available online for free on bmj.com. Now, on to prescribing HRT. Mabel Chu gets some clinical advice. I have with me Professor Martha Hickey, who's Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne in Australia, and Dr Jane Elliott, who's a GP and Senior Lecturer at the University of Adelaide, also in Australia. Now, the role of HRT in menopause has shifted quite a bit in the last 10 years. I remember in the late 90s, um, there were new formulations coming out practically every month. They were heavily marketed by drug companies and women were coming in resolutely asking about being on HRT. Um, Then came the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002, uh, about 10 years ago, which raised concerns about the risks of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease, uh, which in turn led to a backlash against HRT. But it seems to us, it seems to me rather, that as we've unpicked the data that's emerged from WHI and other studies, we're coming to a better understanding of where HRT stands. So Martha, I wonder if you might tell us what the evidence says about when HRT is effective. Thank you. I think the the evidence that HRT is effective has never really been disputed, despite all of these controversies. Um, Oestrogen is the most effective treatment for hot flushes and night sweats. Safety and suitability have really been where discussion has been. Okay, so let's get on to um, the concerns about safety. For most women at the normal age of menopause who are symptomatic, HRT is is a safe option. I think that's an, an important consideration. Uh, for some women, it's not the right choice, and for some women, it may be actively harmful. And our position now with regard to uh, recommending or suggesting HRT is really to promote an individualized discussion of risks and benefits regarding her age and her past history, her expectations of treatment and potential complications. A lot of women come to me concerned about risks of cancer or of heart attack. How do you suggest that we discuss the evidence there? I think there's quite a a body of evidence now to suggest that prolonged use of certainly combined HRT will increase the risk of breast cancer. An additional 8 per 10,000 women per year will develop breast cancer because of HRT. How soon the risk kicks in is an area of controversy. Um, It it may be earlier or it may not be until five years of use. 
But I think women who are considering HRT need to be aware that certainly there is an increased risk. The mammography density can be increased, and there may be this small increase of breast cancer that seems to go get larger with uh, long-term use. For those women who've had a hysterectomy considering estrogen only HRT, we still don't really know whether there is a there is a definitive link between estrogen only HRT and breast cancer, and the data I think are unresolved in that area. And what about the risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, that sort of thing? We're a bit limited in making those recommendations because the studies that we have, the large studies looking at heart disease endpoints, have been conducted in a much older group of women who may have established heart disease. So there are new studies going on in these younger women, but with the evidence that we have at present, for a woman who hasn't had heart disease herself and is not at increased risk, then HRT appears to be safe. With regard to thromboembolic disease, there is an increased risk of thromboembolic disease with HRT. To minimize that risk, using low doses and a non-oral preparation such as a patch seems to be effective. But again, I think we need to advise women that this risk is there. And when we're consulting and individualizing our care, we need to think about other risk factors that the woman may have. Is she overweight? Is she immobile? Does she smoke? Those are much greater risk factors for thromboembolic disease than HRT, but we don't want to compound the risk. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. And what about uh, women who are at high risk of fractures? Um, is there a role for HRT there? Again, it's a controversial area. The main risk of fracture is, of course, in the older age group of women in their 70s and 80s, rather than women in their in their 50s when they might have menopausal symptoms. The, the current guidelines don't suggest HRT as a first line um, for fracture prevention in women at risk. However, if the woman also has hot flushes and uh, moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms, then HRT will certainly uh, reduce her fracture risk for the duration of its use. The issue is that when she stops the HRT, then um, her fracture risk will go back to what it was before. Yes, and hence the importance of discussing lifestyle issues, as you mentioned earlier, for cardiovascular disease. Um, that applies, too, to women who are at risk of getting fractures. I think it's important to keep these um, potential risks and benefits of HRT in context. So, for example, the lifestyle issues that you've mentioned around smoking and heavy alcohol drinking, exercise and diet are far more significant, have a far greater significance on these potential risks than HRT does. Martha, I think, has presented those risks and risks about HRT um, really beautifully. And I think this is the thing that the advice about HRT has become, I think, more rational and balanced. And I think it's our job as GPs to present the facts in really just the way that Martha has just done using absolute not relative risk so that they're meaningful to a woman and then letting women really make up their own minds. Yes, I, th I think you're absolutely right here. So let's take it to the consulting room. Um, you have a woman, woman in front of you who has recently become menopausal. She's quite symptomatic. Um, she doesn't have any of the major risk factors for cardiovascular or thromboembolic disease. 
there's no um, previous history of breast cancer. Are there any other absolute or relative contraindications to HRT? Well, I think you've listed um, most of them there, Mabel. The, the absolute ones of past history of DVT, the gynaecological and breast cancers, uncontrolled blood pressure and obviously established cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. There are um, various relative contraindications that we have listed in our paper uh, along the lines of liver disease or gallbladder disease or perhaps uh, migraine where you should consider what sort of preparation that you use. I'd also suggest that if women are coming in looking um, for, for treatment, that there are two other things to do before you consider treatment. One is to use this as a preventative health opportunity to um, make sure they're up to date with smear tests, mammograms, blood pressure checks, and in some to consider a bone density, lipids and a blood glucose. And don't ever lose the opportunity to talk about um, smoking, lifestyle, alcohol, exercise. So those two things come before any discussion of treatment, I'd say. I would also make the point that um, I certainly wouldn't start HRT in a woman who didn't have a mammogram up to date. Okay, those are really useful tips. Um, so having established that this woman is uh, suitable for HRT and indeed wants it, um, how do you go about starting HRT, Jane? Um, once you've established all of that, you, you, oestrogen is the hormone that is going to relieve her symptoms. So you initiate with oestrogen only if she has had a hysterectomy and you add in a progesterone if she's got a uterus. The progesterone would need to be a cyclical if her last period was less than 12 months ago. Uh, if you don't do cyclical at that point, you'll be much more likely to get a whole lot of breakthrough bleeding, which is um, a nuisance, but also tends to put people off using their hormones. And you'd initiate a continuous progesterone if greater than 12 months since her LMP. Okay. Is there a role for the oral contraception in uh, younger women who might be very early in the menopausal stage? Yes, absolutely. If you, if the woman is in perimenopause, she may still need contraception. So a low, would probably prefer the low dose uh, oral contraceptive pills, provided, of course, that there are no contraindications to that, such as uh, obviously not in a smoker, etc. So yes. you use the pill up until 50 um, as your HRT and as your um, contraceptive. Okay, and oral or transdermal? It's a good question. Um, we've conventionally started with oral preparations and used transdermal preparations for those who don't get on with oral uh, medications for one reason or another. Um, the recommendation is that if you're concerned about cardiovascular disease or thromboembolic risk, then go straight for a, a transdermal um, in the beginning. And also talk to the woman about what she wants. And it's probably important at this point too, isn't it, to discuss the woman's expectations on what she expects the HRT will do for her? I, th I think that's a very important area. And women, I think, have, don't have a problem with the idea of balancing risk and, and benefit. And also, um, 
are often keen to minimize their dose of medication, particularly hormonal medication. Um, so it's, it's important that we start with a low dose. That's, those are the current recommendations. Start with the lowest effective dose. And if you're going to increase, do so very slowly. And I would apply that to all age groups. Um, and to say, say to the woman, if she's getting adequate relief from her symptoms without necessarily complete amelioration of her symptoms, is that, is that okay for you? And, and also suggest other interventions that don't involve taking medication that might help her to deal with her symptoms. I agree. Many women are happy with the turning down of the dial on their symptoms as opposed to a flick of the light switch. Yes, that's a good analogy, isn't it? Let's get on to monitoring HRT. Are there any issues we need to be watching out for? I'm just going to mention abnormal bleeding um, as far as monitoring is concerned. I think this is an area where it, there's a lot of confusion and it, there's a shortage of advice. Abnormal bleeding is very common in women who still have a uterus who take combined HRT. And the guidelines, the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines, I think, are helpful on this and suggest that provided the woman didn't have abnormal bleeding before she started, you can essentially overlook it for the first six months. And again, in the presence of a normal pap smear, of course, but persistent bleeding after six months or irregular bleeding that starts having had no bleeding then does need to be investigated. I, I think in... Um clinical practice, it's, I actually spend some time explaining to patients, because they get confused, that in many areas such as thyroid function, diabetes, uh, anemia, we obviously rely on blood tests to tell us whether any therapy is or isn't the right dose and is working. So you have to actually explain that in menopause medicine, in terms of HRT dose, we specifically do not use a blood level. It isn't helpful and it doesn't tell us whether they've got the right dose. The woman's symptoms tell us, but I think you need to explain to them that we might be measuring some things in their health, but we don't measure this, and actually it's positively um, useful, really. Yes, and uh, I think the, the same applies to blood testing for the diagnosis of menopause, too. A lot of women come in yes, expecting exactly. a blood test. Okay, let's move on to the decision of whether to continue or cease HRT um, if the woman's been on it for a few years and um, they've come in for a repeat scritch, but they also went, wonder when would be a good time to stop it. Well, I think the thing is, I think first of all, a yearly review for anyone on HRT is the way to go so that you can discuss their current need and also discuss with them whatever the latest research is so that they can make a new decision, really, on a yearly basis as to whether it is still the right thing. Then discuss whether it isn't time explaining as they get older that they will probably find they can do with a lower dose. And over time, you will often take people down a dose or even to maybe different preparations sometimes. And then at some point, when the woman is feeling that she can do that, to try off the HRT every couple of years. Um, to see whether they actually still need it. Martha, um, do you have any advice on how to stop HRT? I think this is a question that often comes up in clinical practice and sometimes people are told that they should stop slowly, they shouldn't come off the medication quickly or they're told to stop straight away. And with, this is an area where we really don't have good evidence to support um, the right thing to do. So 
don't be proscriptive with patients saying come off it slowly or stop straight away. Talk to the woman and see what she would like to do. As far as we know, about 50% of women will get a recurrence of their symptoms when they stop their HRT. Um, so the woman needs to be prepared for that and make another appointment to see her a few weeks after she's stopped and talk to her about how she is. That interview is based on a therapeutics article. So for more of the detail, have a look at it on bmj.com. Another more controversial issue surrounding hormone therapy is its link to breast cancer. After the treatment was established as increasing prevalence in the 1990s, its use declined, as did the incidence of breast cancer after decades of rising numbers of cases. However, it's likely that trends in breast cancer are substantially affected by mammography screening as well as hormone treatment. So in a Norwegian ecological study recently published in the BMJ, a group of researchers looked at the variation attributed to each. Co-author Stena Tretley, who's research director at the Cancer Registry of Norway, gave me a taste of their results, beginning with the cancer trends in the country. We started registering in the early 50s, and from 1953 to early 1990s, we had an increase of about 50% in breast cancer incidence, invasive breast cancers. This was almost a linear trend. Since then, we have had a rather strong increase up to 2003, where the incidence leveled off or start to decline. What we did was to to look at what could uh, these two factors, hormone treatment and screening activity, explain this uh, variation in the trend. Mm. What we found was that these two factors, they could explain all the nonlinear trend. We have found that the changes could be attributed to an uh, about an equal part, 50-50. And uh, that was not directly expected, but uh, that was the result. This incident trend is used in uh, the discussion about lead time, the, t- the time you put the diagnosis forward, and uh, also in uh, the estimation and, and the discussion about overdiagnosis and over-treatment. Therefore, we needed more information about this possible influence of hormone treatment because some researchers said, in Norway at least, that that, uh, this hormone treatment didn't mean so much. The message from our study is that a possible influence of hormone treatment should be taken into account. It explained about 50% of the changes we have seen in this uh, period. So, So I think it's important that we have had some separation of the possible effects. That's everything for this week. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.